Okay, why don't we um, convene, assemble. Here is the true historical hardcore. Um, it really is a pleasure to welcome you all to the second day of our conference. Um, I'll be handing the reins over to John Murren in a second. But in the days just before um, we, we, we met, I, I ran across, I found on the Internet, actually, um, a, a recording that's about to be released of campaign speeches from the 1908 and 1912 um, uh, elections. These are recordings that were made by the candidates um, in, well, the places are listed in this little sheet here, these, these sheets. They were recorded for the purpose, even in the pre-radio era, to distribute the candidates' voices as widely as possible. Um, they are recited speeches rather than stump speeches. Hence, um, you'll find, for example, that Theodore Roosevelt's voice uh, doesn't sound quite as high or as screechy as you may have read about in the books of the various people here. Um, he's reciting into a microphone rather than performing on the stump. You will also find, I think, an uncanny resemblance, if your ear is anything like mine, um, between the way that he, um, President Roosevelt spoke and that of his cousin Franklin. At any rate, I've handed out these sheets so that you can follow along. The recordings are good, but they're not perfect. They're a little scratchy. So you might want to pull out your, uh, your sheets and uh, read along as we hear. Probably for the first time in 80 years, the voice of Theodore Roosevelt resounding through the halls of Princeton. When I'm finished, I'm going to uh, sit down, and John Murren will be uh, introducing the panel, and I'll see you later on this afternoon. Uh, Don? Political parties exist to secure responsible governments and to execute the will of the people. From these great tasks, both of your parties have turned aside. Instead of instruments to promote the general welfare, they have become the tools of corrupt interests which use them impartially to serve their selfish purposes. Behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. To destroy this invisible government, to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics, is the first task of the statesmanship of the day. Unhampered by tradition, uncorrupted by power, undismayed by the magnitude of the task, the new body offered itself as the instrument of the people to sweep away old abuses to build a new and nobler government. This declaration is our covenant with the people, and we hereby bind the party and its candidates in state and nation to the pledges made herein. With all my heart and soul, with every particle of high purpose that is in me, I pledge you my word to do everything I can, to put every particle of courage, of common sense, and of strength that I have at your disposal, and to endeavor so far as strength is given me to live up to the obligations you have put upon me, and to endeavor to carry out in the interests of our whole people the policies to which you have today solemnly dedicated yourselves, in the name of the millions of men and women for whom you speak. Surely there never was a fight better worth making than the one in which we are engaged. It little matters what befalls any one of us for the time being stands in the forefront of the 
shall win, and I believe that if we can win the people to want to fight, really means we shall. But win or lose, we shall not fall. Whatever fate may at the moment overtake any of us, the movement itself will not stop. Our cause is based on the eternal principles of righteousness, even though we do now need labor time faith, yet the cause itself shall run. Six weeks ago, here in Chicago, I spoke to the honest representatives of a convention which was not dominated by honest men. A convention where even sat, alas, a majority of men who, with sneering indifference to every principle of right, so acted as to bring to a shameful end the body which had been founded over half a century ago by many whose souls burned the fire of lofty endeavor. Now do you men who in your turn have come together to spend and be spent in the endless crusade against Rome, to you who face the future resolute and confident, to you who strive in the spirit of brotherhood for the betterment of our nation, to you who gird yourselves for this great new fight in the never-ending warfare for the good of humankind, I say in closing, for in that speech I said in closing, we stand with armor, Kevin, and we battle for the Lord. <laughs> the difference between Mr. Wilson and myself is fundamental. The other day, in a speech at Two Falls, Mr. Wilson stated his position when he said that the history of government, the history of liberty, was the history of the limitation of governmental power. This is true as an academic statement of history in the past. It is not true as a statement affecting the present. It is true of the history of medieval Europe. It is not true of the history of 20th century America. In the days when all governmental power existed exclusively in the king or in the baronage, and when the people had no shred of that power in their own hands, then it undoubtedly was that the history of liberty was the history of the limitation of the governmental power of the outsiders who possessed that power. But today the people have actually or potentially the entire governmental power. It is theirs to use and to exercise if they choose to use and to exercise. It offers the only adequate instrument with which they can work for the betterment, for the uplifting of the masses of our people. The liberty of which Mr. Wilson speaks today means merely the liberty of some great trust magnate to do that which he is not entitled to. It means merely the liberty of some factory owner to work haggard women over hours for underpaid and himself to pocket the profit. It means the liberty of the factory owner who crowds his operatives into some crazy death trap on a top floor where if fire starts, the slaughter is immense. It means the liberty of the big factory owner who is conscienceless and unscrupulous 
to work their men and women under conditions which eat into their lives like a gnat. It means the liberty of even less conscientious factory owners to make their money out of the toil, the labor of little children. Men of this stamp are the men whose liberty would be preserved by Mr. Wood. Men of this stamp are the men whose liberty would be preserved by the limitation of governmental power. We propose, on the contrary, to extend governmental power in order to secure the liberty of the wage workers, of the men and women who toil in industry, to save the liberty of the oppressed from the oppressor. Mr. Wilson stands for the liberty of the oppressor to oppress. We stand for the limitation of his liberty thus to oppress those who are weaker than himself. <laughs> Well, welcome to uh, this session on Theodore Roosevelt and the progressive tradition. Can you all hear me? All right. Let me say, I, probably because of uh, President Clinton's visit, I found myself getting nostalgic last night and this morning, uh, and thinking back to my own days as a graduate student in the late 50s and the early 60s, uh, when I Almost everybody uh, studying U.S. history, whatever uh, the person's specialty, and mine is early America, uh, found quite a few books in 20th century American history that we all believed we had to master. Uh, it was just important, whether as historians, whether as a civic obligation. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'd say well over half of these books were about the 20th century. I don't think you'd get a similar pattern today if you ask graduate students uh, what they have to read. Uh, in any case, at Yale, uh, I suddenly figured out uh, that they were all written by people uh, who were teaching the two-semester 20th century history course in elite schools. I mean, I hadn't quite put that together before. And I started auditing John Blum's lectures at Yale. Uh, a lot of us did. Uh, the graduate students usually sat way in the back, and the undergraduates were closer. Uh, and the dynamic became clear of really, I think, what, uh, what this course was, was about. Uh, that uh, basically these were professors uh, who were justifying the American progressive tradition to undergraduates who were about 80% Republican uh, at, uh, at Harvard, at Yale, at Princeton, not at Columbia. I, said, I suspect the dynamic was different with, uh, uh, with Richard Hofstadter, but it was Arthur Schlesinger at Harvard and John Blum at Yale, uh, Eric Goldman at Princeton, uh, and their books like Goldman's Rendezvous with Destiny really did have that kind of a mission. Uh, and, uh, uh, again, the dynamic in these courses was, was fascinating because uh, while the students were usually quite good-natured, they didn't mind hissing and booing when some really hard political point got made. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there was, there was a kind of agenda here to convert uh, these people and to persuade them that the American progressive tradition, and particularly the New Deal, was a good thing, was a great thing, had really saved the world, had probably saved uh, uh, capitalism as well, uh, and that they ought to learn to appreciate it. Um, I think that dynamic changed them pretty rapidly uh, between 1960 and 64, when all the straw polls I show, uh, I saw at the time, indicated that about 80% of all the undergraduates at these schools uh, were for LBJ. 
uh, and they kept moving to the left after 1964. Between 1965 and 1968, suddenly in these courses, uh, the professors discovered their students were more radical than they were, which was a new experience, and which I suspect has changed the whole way we understand the 20th century. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a really good thing that uh, the American Studies program, the Woodrow Wilson School, have put together uh, this whole uh, program on the American progressive tradition. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're going to have quite a time revisiting it today. So our first, I'll be very brief. Uh, I think what I'll do is just, uh, since the, actually your program gives a very nice capsule uh, biography of everybody, uh, let me just uh, say our first speaker is John Blum. Uh, the books that I thought I had to read, uh, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s were his Republican Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and the Politics of Morality, uh, which is all, has had a permanent impact on my understanding of Woodrow Wilson as uh, a man who ascended to a new level just when everything was collapsing at what he happened to be doing at the time, whether as president of Yale, governor of New Jersey, and then president of the United States, except there was no further level to ascend to, and so things did come uh, crashing down in 1919, 1920 for him. Uh, but you know, uh, in addition to the two books I've mentioned, uh, he has also done V Was for Victory on American Popular Culture during World War II and Roosevelt Morgenthau and many other books. Uh, and uh, the order in which we're going to proceed uh, after that will be Gary Gerstel, uh, who uh, has taught it here uh, at Catholic University and now at the University of Maryland. Uh, he has, uh, uh, his first book was Working Class Americanism, The Politics of Labor in a Textile City in Rhode Island. He has, uh, in addition, something that isn't mentioned here, uh, what I found a really fascinating article in the American Historical Review, I think about 1994, on the American liberal tradition in the 20th century, making the case that American liberals have been able to deal with either class or race, but never both at the same time. Uh, and that's the dilemma of the American liberal tradition. Uh, and uh, uh, Eric Love uh, will be the next commentator. Uh, Eric finished his dissertation at Princeton just about three years ago. I, mm -hmm. I, I was uh, uh, drafted onto that defense committee at the last minute because of the illness of a colleague. Uh, and found an utterly fascinating dissertation on racism and uh, American imperialism. I see he's now, uh, the book version is going to carry this down to 1915. Uh, the dissertation was basically the Spanish-American War and its immediate aftermath. Uh, and uh, Dan Rogers, who's uh, taught at Wisconsin before coming uh, to Princeton just about 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, Dan has uh, lots of different books. He's uh, American Intellectual and Cultural History. And while he started out uh, with a book on uh, what uh, uh, the, uh, the values of the labor movement in the late 19th and the early 20th century. Uh, he then went on to contested truths, key words in American politics since independence, and much more recently, Atlantic crossings, uh, social politics in a progressive age. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, we will have Christine Stanzel, who's been in this department now for uh, about 20 years, a little, maybe 21 or 22. Uh, and uh, her most recent book is uh, American Moderns, Bohemian New York and the Creation of a New Century, uh, preceded by City of Women, Sex and Class in New York City, which has been a great hit. Uh, and uh, uh, she tells me she's going to be quite brief. Uh, but our, I guess our target for the commentators is about 10 minutes apiece. And uh, uh, Professor Blum's uh, essay is also brief and to the point and uh, quite elegant. Thank you, John. Can you all hear me? If anyone can, would he or she please raise a hand? 
Thank you. <clears throat> Theodore Roosevelt became an adult during the age of enterprise, so-called. The consequences of that industrialization of America made him a reformer. In that role, over time, he exerted arguably the premier political leadership in fashioning the, the progressive tradition. He began with, with patrician attitudes and values, but more important, like so many other future progressives, <clears throat> he began as a moralist. He entered politics because he wanted to rule, <clears throat> but he quickly discovered that the process of ruling, whether by election or by appointment, required compromise with men with less rectitude than his. So Roosevelt and America Jer Jeremiah became, in his phrase, a practical idealist, an idealist resolved to accomplish his mission and therefore constrained, at least until 1912, uh, by the conditions necessary for accomplishment. By the standards of politics, Roosevelt was also an intellectual. He studied the public issues of his era, he summoned experts to advise him, and he was a quick learner. In a variety of manifestations, the major issues he confronted during the last decades of the 19th century arose from the inequities inherent in the process of modernization. As he learned more and more about that process, Roosevelt came to understand that the market the market revered by men of business and their spokesmen did not provide a neutral solution to the nation's industrialization. On the contrary, the market dominated as it became by the great consolidations, created grave social problems, problems so pervasive that only federal action could remedy them. To retain, <clears throat> to restrain the workings of the market to protect labor, consumers, and lesser competitors of the great corporations, the federal government had to invent and enforce appropriate rules of corporate behavior. It had also to redistribute some of the gains of the modernizers to those who suffered from modernization. As Roosevelt as president preached, government was the solution. That was the creed of Roosevelt's progressives. That was the later creed of the New Deal and the Great Society. That is still the progressive creed today. Governing for the people is at the heart of the progressive tradition. During the last several days of the 19th century, government functioned not on behalf of the people, but on behalf of the special interests. The natural wealth of the nation its unequal resources of arable land, coal, iron, precious metals, lumber, provided the base from which the enterprises built, aided indispensably, as they were, by the largesse of the federal government, which in effect gave those resources away for private exploitation. The government also favored industry with the protective tariff <clears throat> and immigration policy that invited cheap foreign labor to flow in rising numbers to the United States and a labor policy that intervened in industrial disputes only on the side of management, repressive though it usually was. When federal favor was slow and forthcoming, 
the industrialists bought their way to obtaining it, uh, as the transcontinental railroads had. Though disdainful of politics, the captains of industry contributed generously to congressional and presidential campaigns. They coaxed and bribed the Congress to obtain protective schedules for the goods they produced. Government, its bounty purchased, was underwriting modernization, though the profits went largely to the newly rich and their lawyers, and the burden of change fell to the poor. But it was the corruption of public life that aroused the wrath of a generation of reformers, Roosevelt among them. Born in the decade, <clears throat> born in the decade before secession, he had a proud and powerful sense of nation. It informed his ambition to restore the republic to the virtues he attributed to the founders, to Lincoln, and to the Union. Taking the Decalogue as his text, some thought he'd invented it. With manic energy, he began to set things right. From the resulting experience, he learned about the limitations of those governing and about the potentialities of governing creatively. So it was that Roosevelt, as a member of the New York State Assembly in the late 1880s, won immediate notice for his shrill attacks on Tammany Hall and for his tentative support of legislation regulating sweatshops. Not yet a committed reformer, he had at least made a personal reconnaissance of poverty. A decade later, he learned much more as police commissioner of New York City. His nightly inspections of the Tenderloin, usually in company with the investigative reporters Jacob Reese and Lincoln Steffens, uh, taught him to understand that Tammany provided basic social services to the poor. From that experience, Roosevelt concluded that political reform in the cities could proceed only if social reforms ended the dependence of the indigent on the bosses by offering necessary services through settlement houses and organized charities. It required another step further to recognize, as the hard times of the 1890s suggested, that the problem of poverty, far too complex and widespread for a thousand charitable lights, needed government attention and resources. But as Roosevelt had also learned, government was not yet capable of assuming that task. As a United States Civil Service Commissioner, he had undertaken to make competence the essential test for federal appointments. That objective led to continual friction between Roosevelt and the masters of federal patronage during the Harrison and Cleveland administrations. Friction Roosevelt arranged uh, to have widely publicized. But he also realized that he could not insulate politics from politicians. So a goodly number of influential posts had to be reserved uh, for the partisan use of the president, so long as truly venal candidates were excluded. Civil service reform did not in itself diminish the role of money in elections. Indeed, in 1896, Mark Hanna broke the record for spending uh, to elect a president and spent the money he raised largely in negative advertising. But civil service mattered as did Roosevelt's example in promoting it. By bringing disinterested and meritorious people into the federal government, 
Roosevelt was preparing the government to govern. When he had the opportunity during his presidency to recruit his own partisans, uh, he brought to Washington on the federal bench a distinguished group of talented men. He explained his purpose in a characteristic run-on sentence, no less telling because of its awkwardness. A nation, he wrote, <clears throat> must be judged in part by the character of its public men, not merely by their ability, but by their ideals and the measure in which they realize those ideals, by their attitude in private life, and much more by their attitude in public life, both as regards their conception of their duties toward their country and their conception of the duty of that country embodied in its government towards its own people. He had come to understand that official probity in itself <clears throat> did not assure good government. He learned that lesson gradually during the social discord of the early 1890s. The turbulent state of the economy then provoked organized protests from those who did not share the profits of modernization or the favor of government. The anger of underpaid and overworked steelmakers exploded in the strike against Carnegie Steel in 1892. The strike resolved only after state militia intervened on the side of the company. In 1894, the growing American Railway Union, uh, led by Eugene Debs and supported by Governor John Altgeld of Illinois, struck the Pullman Company and the railroads handling its cars. Now federal troops broke the strike, which had won the plaudits of the unorthodox economist Henry George. Industrial chaos disturbed Roosevelt, for whom the preservation of social order was the first priority. He denounced Debs, Oldgold, and George as the Danton Marat and Robespierre of America. Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky hadn't yet come along. But he also reached a more informed and important conclusion. It was far better to prevent social disorder than to have to put it down. Better a Lafayette than a Robespierre. And prevention would depend upon federal efforts to remedy the conditions that had provoked violence. So too would the populists, early victims of the workings of the international market for agricultural commodities. West and South, farmers with small holdings saw the value of their crops drop as new areas of production fed world markets while they had to buy in the expensive protective markets of the United States. They spent their wrath on targets close to home, targets they could reach, railroads, processes of agricultural commodities, manufacturers of heavy equipment. But they also demanded cheaper credit and cheaper money, and to those ends, free silver. In the American countryside, a sizable fraction of angry white men and of women and black people, too. All victims of the market were populists. Impatient for help, they could not afford to be genteel. So they heeded Mary Lease in her advice to her fellow Kansans to raise less corn and more hell. When in 1896 the populists entered a loose alliance with the Democrats in support of Bryan and Free Silver, <clears throat> Roosevelt condemned them as boors 
resentful of refinement and culture, hostile to personal thrift and industry. But that curious and irrelevant indictment receded as the turmoil on the countryside subsided with the return of prosperity. Within five years, Roosevelt, then president, still preferring reform to revolution, stole Bryan's lance, as the commoner complained, and initiated a program of assistance to farmers in their planting and marketing. He had already stressed the social dangers of envy. He railed against the exhibitionism of the newly rich, in part because it was vulgar, but at least in equal part because it flaunted <clears throat> the wealth of the few in the face of the poverty of the many. Anger and envy could tear civil society apart, endangering order and virtue alike. To avert that danger, Roosevelt soon recommended a federal estate tax on swollen fortunes, a tax as useful in the next millennium as it was in his. All in all, the 1890s left a legacy of apprehension that, as much as any other factor, motivated the sequential decade of reform. Before the 1890s ended, Roosevelt displayed a democratic spirit that contrasted with the patrician snobbery of his youth. The new spirit infused his leadership in 1898 of the Rough Riders, the regiment he raised to fight in Cuba during the war with Spain. It was, as he meant it to be, an imperialistic war, but the bullets were no less real on that account. Nevertheless, <clears throat> exhorting his troops to the attack, Roosevelt at the base of the San Juan Ridge shouted, Gentlemen, the almighty God and the just cause are with you. Gentlemen, charge. They did, of course, and they conquered. And ever after, Roosevelt loved them all. Even the felon who shot at his wife but missed her and hit his sister-in-law instead. But whom had he exhorted as gentlemen? A conjury of Ivy League athletes, cowboys, Indians, and other adventurers most of whom he would have ignored in his Harvard years. For Roosevelt had come to admire all men who fought well, bred well, and worked hard. He had come to believe that the virtues Jefferson had identified with the yeoman would still prevail in modern industrial society if people led vigorous, upright, responsible lives. Then they, Roosevelt's folk, would follow and elect men like him. On the basis of those assumptions, he could believe in government of the people. He could sustain a Jeffersonian confidence in the wisdom of the electorate and support electoral reforms. Otherwise, that confidence would have clashed with his Hamiltonian conception of the Constitution's elasticity and his Madisonian view of order. As governor of New York, Roosevelt offended the state's Republican leader and his corporate clients by sponsoring a measure that taxed transit and utility franchises as real property. The legislation reflected the influence of Henry George, 
whom Roosevelt had dismissed as a revolutionary only five years earlier. But Roosevelt had less success uh, with his efforts to discipline the behavior of national corporations doing business in the state, for they were engaged in, in interstate commerce, which only the federal government could reach. So he had to content himself with developing ideas for federal use. The potentialities of those ideas and Roosevelt's clear intention to employ them underlay Mark Hanner's supposed outburst when the Rough Rider obtained the vice presidential nomination. Don't you realize there's only heart, one heartbeat between that damn cowboy and the White House? As a national candidate, Roosevelt jousted successfully with Bryan in the hinterlands while McKinley stayed home. But Hannah's first fears, his worst fears, materialized in 1901 when McKinley was assassinated. When he inherited the presidency, an office he employed to its full potentialities, as had no one since Lincoln, Roosevelt was already becoming a progressive. Before he left that office, he had formulated the progressive agenda for his generation and the next. Just as he, as he sensed the political mood of his essentially middle-class constituency, so did he instruct that constituency in how to use the federal government to compensate for the inequities accompanying modernization. He made governing effective, he made it fun, and he used it to preserve capitalism by taming it. He energized the conservation movement, imposed fair charges on ranchers feeding their stock on the public domain, and on electrical companies renting federal water power sites. He set aside thousands of acres of public domain to protect them from private exploitation and to preserve them for their natural beauty and for future use. To demonstrate the authority of the federal government, Roosevelt vitalized the Antitrust Act by initiating successful prosecutions of the dominant corporations, the trusts, that had aroused public wrath in the railroad, oil, meatpacking, gunpowder, and tobacco industries. Under Roosevelt, the federal government <clears throat> undertook on the national level the kinds of reform, social and economic, that progressives had begun in the cities and states. Roosevelt saw through Congress legislation to regulate railroads and their rates, <clears throat> legislation <clears throat> for the first time in American history altered the artificial workings of the market. So did his Treasury Department alter the market in its innovation, central bank type intervention in the banking panic of 1907. Further, Roosevelt supported legislation <clears throat> to protect consumers by instituting federal inspection of meatpacking and federal regulation of other foods and drugs. Beyond those achievements, <clears throat> he recommended the creation of a federal agency to regulate all corporations as the Interstate Commerce Commission regulated the railroads. In his annual message to Congress in 1908, he urged judicial restraint, particularly toward injunctions affecting strikes and boycotts, and in cases testing labor legislation such as Wages and Hours Acts and Employee Compensation Acts. In 1910 and 1912, moving toward his break with the Republican Party, he developed the platform of the Bull Moose, a platform that included federal old age and unemployment insurance. Those, in, those accomplishments 
inspired two progressive tracts of enduring intellectual significance, Herbert Crowley's Promise of America and Walter Lippmann's Drift and Mastery. They also lighted the way not only for Wilson's new freedom, but even for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Indeed, FDR <clears throat> was wont to say that his wife's Uncle Ted was the greatest man he had ever known. But Roosevelt's agenda was not enough. Though he brought into government, especially the federal commissions and courts, intelligent professional men, in keeping with the biases of his time, he appointed almost exclusively from the ranks of the elite, white, partisan, college-educated males. Government of the people and for the people had yet to become government by the people. But progressives in later generations moved it that way. The New Deal recruited from, much, from a much broader base, but still talented base, and by the end of the 20th century, the president had announced that he wanted a cabinet that looked like America. Roosevelt's generation of progressives, like most other Americans then, had not recognized the injustice of racial and sexual discrimination. Later progressives did, and used government to combat that prejudice, thereby fostering government by the people. Roosevelt himself, like his two immediate successors, had at best a casual attitude towards civil liberties, including the liberties of radicals to dissent and protest. Later progressives, alas, only intermittently, protected those liberties for the rest of the century. The progressive agenda had to change and grow over time. But the progressive tradition, in its essence, persisted as Theodore Roosevelt had established it. As the next millennium began, modernization in new forms was rewarding the modernizers and penalizing the modernized. The market could not cope with that issue, nor could it discipline the modernizers who were again corrupting public life to obtain federal favors. As in 1900, so in the year 2000, the progressive solution required recourse to government for the people, to protecting the weak and controlling the powerful, to restoring and preserving equity in a now post-industrial society. That kind of governing remained the fundamental objective of progressive striving. For the progressives, government was still the solution. Thank you. Now Gary Gerstel, perhaps I should point out uh, Gary is the only member of this panel without a Yale connection. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I was there once. I drove through. Thank you. How did that happen? <laughs> he does have a certifiable Harvard connection, which does seem to be does seem to be appropriate for Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> I have a couple. There. <laughs> Well, I want to thank uh, uh, Sean Wilenz for inviting me to participate in this, even though I have no connection to Yale. Um, and I look forward to uh, what should be a very interesting and, I hope, provocative day in terms of reassessing the progressive tradition in America and its relevance for today. 
I can't help but remark on the changing attitude toward the progressive tradition in the last 15 or 20 years. In the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, uh, there was enormous criticism of the progressive tradition for being elitist, co-optative, capitalist, for being undemocratic and enshrining the rule of experts. In fact, there are some people in this room who, in one form or another, cut their teeth on this form of analysis. Uh, and this was a major um, initiative of political history during that time. That our thinking about the progressive tradition has, um, has changed has a great deal to do, I think, with the resurgence of conservatism in the 1980s and early 1990s. From the perspective of liberalism and the left, this resurgence has narrowed the range of the possible. Liberal politicians today are much less inclined to challenge capitalist prerogatives, to regulate markets, to establish a big government with the capacity to undertake major social reforms. And as the possibilities of our moment have shrunk, the allure of the progressives of the early 20th century has grown. And this is, it's grown for me too. I'm not just talking about others. And listen to Theodore Roosevelt, not a radical figure by any stretch of the imagination in the early 20th century, on corporations, private property, and the common wheel. I didn't know there was to be a recording, and this, in a sense, reinforces what that second recording on the meaning of liberty said. It is time, he said in 1910, when he introduced his new nationalism, for Americans to place the welfare of the commonwealth ahead of the welfare of rich individuals. The man, Roosevelt declared, who wrongly holds that every human right is secondary to his profit, must now give way to the advocate of human welfare, who rightly maintains that every man holds property subject to the general right of the community to regulate its use to whatever degree the public welfare may require it. No wonder those worried about the effects of free markets untrammeled capitalism, wealth inequality, and the collapse in some quarters of notions of public responsibility. No wonder that such people have turned to what Theodore Roosevelt called the general right of the community. No wonder they have turned eagerly in Roosevelt's direction. Uh, for where in the two major parties today can you find someone talking in the way that Roosevelt was talking at that time? Let us not forget what made Theodore Roosevelt possible. John Blum tells us a great deal about Roosevelt's journey from comfortable gentry to militant progressives, to militant progressive in seven pages of the best and most eloquent biographical prose that I have read in a very long time. And he makes the very important point that this was not simply a story of the gifts the insight and maturation of an exceptional individual, exceptional by any standard. He makes the point, too, that TR was made in a very important way by a broad social revolt, revolt from below and by his reaction to it. I want to make that point even stronger. I want to underscore what John Blum has said. I want to emphasize the degree to which the populists, labor unions, labor strikes, anarchists, syndicalists, and socialists made Theodore Roosevelt the progressive he was. This revolt did not stop in 1900. It continued through the first two decades of the 20th century. 
It was a revolt large enough to threaten the existence of capitalism and the integrity and the stability of the political system. The radicals and rebels were never really in control, but they stirred up enough trouble to cause those with better access to power to take notice. Is it any accident that progressivism crested in 1912 just as socialism did? I don't think so. In the words of Martin Sklar, a historian of this period, the progressives sought to contain socialism, and John Blum has made this point as well, in the double sense of that word. To contain it meant, on the one hand, to take elements from the socialist agenda and make it part of the progressive platform, and to contain it meant also to defang it, to stymie it, uh, to regulate capitalism in the interests of preserving it rather than of seeing it overthrown. In the process, the socialist bid was uh, to be co-opted. This point seems to me extremely important in a conference devoted to re rehabilitating the progressive tradition. For too much of a focus on the presidents themselves, even those as interesting, as influential as Roosevelt and Wilson, deflects attention perhaps from the social movements that were so indispensable in the early 20th century and must be again, I would argue, if the progressive tradition is to rehabilitate itself. These movements don't have to be socialist, but they do have to create trouble, turmoil, and perhaps in some cases even threaten disorder. There are signs that such movements are beginning to appear, a labor movement growing stronger and bolder, albeit uncertainly, strange collections of rebels who descend on meetings of the World Bank, the Greens and the candidacy of Ralph Nader. But these forces have not reached the point where they can truly make the difference they need to or could. And until they do, I contend, progressivism, uh, the, a progressivism worthy of its name won't truly reappear. We often think that progressivism and radicalism are opposite forces, and in many ways they are because they are always contending and fighting each other. But I'm suggesting that if we look over the scope of American history, uh, there have been ways in which uh, radicalism has been indispensable towards strengthening aspects of the progressive tradition which we might wish to recapture. I want to mention another feature of progressivism that we would be unwise to ignore that it was not just a project for regulating capital and spreading social justice. It was also a program of national renewal. The progressives did not assume the existence of an American community. They did not assume the existence of a, an American nation. The community, the nation, had to be nurtured. It had to be invigorated. In some cases, it had to be created. The ties among groups had to be strengthened. Immigrants had to be Americanized. Those who showed not a requisite loyalty to the American nation or an ability to participate as members, perhaps they had to be excluded. Roosevelt thought about these matters all the time. His program for progressivism was called a new nationalism, by which he meant the desire to create a new nation. What values and activities would strengthen that community? Which groups were eligible for inclusion in the American nation? Many of his answers constitute a legacy worth preserving. One answer was that the civic ideals of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of liberty, individuality, and equality had to be the core values of the nation. They had to be strengthened. They had to be disseminated. A second answer he gave was, was the need to welcome into the American nation, into the American community, groups that many of his contemporaries despised, Jews, Catholics, Eastern and Southern Europeans, Japanese, 
The Rough Riders were even more diverse a group than John Blum has suggested, for they included Indians, they included a few Jews and Italians, they included Irish, and they included, in the words of Theodore Roosevelt, four men in whom the blood of the Vikings flowed. A third answer was that Roosevelt uh, was that America had to celebrate hybridity, the mixings of people. Roosevelt saw in such hybridity strength. He had nothing but contempt for the views of many of his contemporaries who were hung up on notions of racial purity. The notion that America was somehow racially pure or could be made no sense to him. And in his emphasis on, on hybridity, he was far ahead of many of his contemporaries and far ahead of many of us who live in American society in the late 20th century. But other responses of Roosevelt to how the nation might be constituted are considerably more troubling. There was an eagerness in him for war, for conquest, for domination, for only through such measures could a people truly demonstrate its unity and superiority. And the more savage the war, the greater the benefits uh, for the victors. That was the reason Roosevelt had taken from the American struggle with the Indians, which he saw as a foundational struggle for the American nation. What he took from that was the defining experience of America, America born, born through savage war and strife. He also had the conviction that certain groups, for reasons of racial inferiority, could never really be full and equal members of the American community. The Chinese fell into that category, and so did African Americans. Indeed, Roosevelt regarded the importation of African slaves to the North American continent as a racial and national catastrophe. The European races who conquered America, Roosevelt once intoned, to their own lasting harm committed a crime whose short-sighted folly was worse than its guilt, for they brought hordes of African slaves whose descendants now form immense populations in certain portions of the land. These hordes, Roosevelt's, Roosevelt believed, did not take well to democracy, a form of government that depended on the kind of self-control and mastery that only the white races had attained. Thus, blacks could never be truly assimilated into the American community. Roosevelt was often troubled by the contradiction between his democratic faith and his belief in black inferiority. He sometimes stood up for the rights of individual black men and women, insisting that they be granted what the Declaration of Independence had promised them. But he never called for the dismantling of Jim Crow that took root during his presidency. He belittled the black troops in Spain in 1898, without whose hero heroism Kettle Hill and San Juan Hill would never have been taken. And in 1912, when his progressivism was in full, full flower, he turned away at the doors of the Progressive Party Convention numerous black delegates who had come there enthusiastically to support him. Roosevelt would always regard the Negro as an indelible black mark on the white nation that had so gloriously emerged in the mid-18th century, a constant reminder of America's racial imperfection, of an opportunity compromised by the nefarious dealings of corrupt, anti-democratic, and immoral aristocrats. There would never be, Roosevelt's one, Roosevelt once confided in private correspondence, a true solution to, quote, the terrible problem offered by the presence of the Negro on this continent. Why dwell on this? First, I don't think it is enough to say, as John Blum does, that, quote, Roosevelt's generation of progressives had not recognized the injustice of racial discrimination. One must also say that many progressives insisted on the virtue of racial 
discrimination. They insisted on the virtue of subordinating blacks or on excluding them from the American national community. As a result, racial exclusion became far more deeply embedded in the progressive tradition than is usually recognized. We need to understand both this embedding and the difficult processes of extrication which have haunted the society for much of the 20th century. Second, we have to recognize that the national community that Roosevelt built and whose strength is so admired by some liberals today depended at least in part on exclusion. Progressives of that era found community not just in civic ideals but in racial exclusion. They defined themselves at least in part by what they were not. To what extent, I ask, do strong political communities, even progressive ones, depend on exclusion? To what extent, I ask, do we need an enemy, either external or internal, to draw us together? To what extent does social solidarity, the kind of solidarity that encourages a concern for the common weal and that prompts citizens to regulate private power in the public interest, to what extent does this social solidarity depend on establishing a social distance between us and them? Some of you, no doubt, will regard such musings as off-base, perhaps even a fuzzy kind of reasoning or math. But I submit to you the national community in which we live is much weaker than it was in the heyday of the progressive tradition and is much less capable than American society was then of generating social solidarity. There are many reasons for this, but one, it seems to me, is the feeling that many Americans have that the nationalism of the progressive past rested too much on hierarchy, subordination, and exclusion. And we have yet to demonstrate how the virtues of that past can be repossessed without at the same time unleashing its vices. Thank you. Eric, do you want to use the podium? Still morning, so good morning. Uh, Professor Von Blum has given us, I think, a fine foundation from which we can consider here today some of the most critical aspects of Theodore Roosevelt's foreign policy. The paper itself is primarily concerned with progressivism and Roosevelt's place in it as domestic phenomena. But significant parts, I think, both of progressivism, I'm sorry, um, but significant parts of both progressivism and, um, and Roosevelt that made so great an impact and which set modern American foreign policy on a trajectory we've tracked over the course of the last century are certainly here in this paper. In foreign policy, as in domestic, the heart of progressivism, as Professor Blum has stated, was, quote, governing for the people, unquote. The Roosevelt we see here is, again, as Professor Blum says, the patrician, the reformer, the moralist, and the idealist, and that's just the short list. But each of these qualities, for better or for worse, characterized TR's approach to foreign relations during his presidency and his thoughts on the foreign relations afterwards. But he was also a man, I think, who, who possessed extraordinary force of will, exceptional political skills, charisma, and rhetorical power, which simultaneously convinced, seduced, enraptured, and overwhelmed his audiences. I believe also that those who encountered Roosevelt felt his presence in a personal way during his presidential years and understood through this encounter how rare a man and a leader he truly was. To find a chief executive who could compare, one would have to go back, I think, at least to Lincoln. 
Roosevelt's time, obviously, and before Lincoln, uh, at least back as far as Andrew Jackson. Roosevelt's immediate predecessor, William McKinley, was widely respected and certainly loved by some. He was a Civil War uh, veteran, himself a man of extraordinary political cunning, even by Theodore Roosevelt's very grudging reckoning. But McKinley was, at the same time, very clearly a man of the previous century, a product of small-town America. He was masculine, but perhaps not so manly in the modern sense that Roosevelt come to represent. McKinley was comfortable, but perhaps at the same time a little squishy for the new age. Roosevelt, by comparison, was urban, modern, openly intellectual, cosmopolitan, manly and civilized. More than that, I argue, he was a force for civilization. He was recognized as such, and people loved him for these things. Now, why was this? I cannot absolutely prove my next point, but I think that some of the explanation rises out of how Roosevelt's public life transcended comfortable tradition and convention. His ascendance marked the coming of a new age in America, dramatically different from the nation of for people who were living at the time, dramatically different from the age, uh, nation of their fathers and mothers. And the people were very conscious of this. Progressivism, modernism, modernism, the new age, whatever label one attaches is inadequate to describing the array of complex forces and diverse movements that transformed America and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But few individuals represented the nation and their historical age as well as Roosevelt both in terms of his strengths and his contradictions. Now, in its operation, we can understand Roosevelt's approach to foreign affairs if we acknowledge two things, I believe. First, that he embraced and quickly tried to move beyond, perhaps too far beyond, the progressive's concept of foreign affairs. And second, that it was up to Roosevelt to confront the consequences of imperialism left to him by William McKinley. The progressive's vision of foreign affairs was organized around a fundamentally conservative set of goals and assumptions, focused primarily on opportunities for trade. This meant finding new open doors for American products and maintaining and expanding existing ones. The progressives also recognized, especially after the War of 1898, the need for strategic outposts, meaning military bases and coaling stations, and all this was inseparable from the commercial thrust and an absolute necessity in protecting commerce abroad. Lesser though critical priorities for the progressives emphasize concepts like order, certainly, civilization, and affecting moral uplift among nations and races they considered inferior. In this way, Roosevelt envisioned the United States as a nation that would take an active and sometimes even aggressive role in international affairs, and he would lead it in this direction, alone if he had to. Most important in the late 19th century, the United States, uh, I'm sorry, most important, late 19th century uh, empire, in the early 19th century, excuse me, empire took the United States far outside of its traditional sphere, particularly in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War and the acquisition of the Philippines. The United States was deeply invested in East Asia versus uh, China, obviously, as a market for American goods, but involvement became deeper, became cultural as well as political, military, and economic. The military aspect in the first few years after 1898 focused primarily on a tragic war fighting Filipino nationalists. But the United States at the same time, during and after the point where this conflict was, uh, was, was, was finalized, found itself confronting nations that were also engaged in a rigorous competition in East Asia. 
in the situation the United States found itself or placed itself within this competition with very mixed and sometimes tragic consequences. Part of this was the Japanese and Russian expansionism that uh, the United States encountered as those two powers jockeyed uh, for position in China, specifically over Manchuria. The, China, the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and 1895 revealed that Japan would be a force to contend with in East Asia, but France, Germany, and Russia combined at this time to halt Japanese territorial ambitions. Specifically, Russia managed to keep Japan out of southern Manchuria and away from strategically vital ports, at the southern, uh, you know, strategically vital ports in that area. Russians, Russia's movements into Manchuria and its rising interest in Korea raised tensions which finally exploded into warfare with uh, Japan in February 1904. Now, Roosevelt's observing this, and among his concerns were the potential for general war in East Asia and the consequences that might have, all this might have on the Philippines. But his main worries, I believe, were for the long term, and they were over the future of American commerce. Russia had threatened to close Manchuria off to trade, which would have been a direct violation of the open door principle that the United States was so deeply involved in. After Japan won early and decisive victories, Roosevelt wrote competent, uh, competently and in his own unique uh, use of language, quote, that the Japs will win out. They have played our game because they have played the game of civilized mankind. Now, beneath this language that perhaps still shocks some of us today, lay an assumption of balance of power, a balance of power strategy. The game of civilized mankind, as Roosevelt referred to it, meant anything that assisted American interests and, more importantly, American commerce. Anticipating a direct diplomatic mode role, Roosevelt continued, quote, we may be of genuine service if Japan wins out and preventing interference to rob her of her fruits of victory. Both sides suffered from this conflict. Russia was facing revolution, and Japan was facing uh, imminent insolvency. And Roosevelt, the opportunist, took advantage and stepped forward to mediate a conclusion to that war. He ended it peaceably. And again, his main goal was to maintain balance of power in East Asia because it was most conducive with America's policy of the open door. In this way, he was determined to grab America's share of the fruits of Japan's victory. For his personal effort in creating the Treaty of Portsmouth which ends the Russo-Japanese War, Roosevelt was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace, making him the first American to be so honored. Historian Robert Farrell, I think, looks at this incisively, and he suggests that Roosevelt's attitude and that of many other Americans with regard to the to Portsmouth Treaty could be summarized to say that Japan would open Manchuria to trade and ultimately serve as houseboy for the open door. Those are Farrell's words, not mine, by the way. In this instance, for Roosevelt, the opportunity for statesmanship and the compelling, and compelling national interests came together brilliantly. And if this did not occur naturally, Roosevelt was content and even eager to force the two together. His ambitions in the Caribbean and determination to have America, an American-controlled canal through Central America led TR in assisting a coup that separated Panama from Colombia in 1903. Colombia and the United States had signed a treaty that would take the canal through Panama, which was a province of Colombia at the time. And, uh, but eventually the Colombian Senate refused to ratify the treaty. Roosevelt was incensed by what he considered double cross. He spewed threats. He sent curses at the, Colombian, at the Colombian leadership. And then he finally, characteristically, took action. American intervention 
in the fall of 1903 helped Panamanian nationalists break away from Colombia. For the Americans' part, the operation was quite subdued compared to the war that had just ended in the Philippines, and was certainly subdued compared to what would occur later on throughout the Caribbean, in Mexico, and in Central America. This operation required only the USS Nashville and a few symbolic threats of force, but it proved to be such an embarrassing moment in the history of the United States, American foreign policy, that even Roosevelt's partisan considered it a black mark against his entire record. For his part, throughout his life, to the best of my knowledge at least, Roosevelt remained unapologetic. Speaking of the canal in 19, Roosevelt, Rose, he, uh, speaking of the canal in 1911, excuse me, Roosevelt claimed the entire project as his own. He said, quote, I started it, and if I had followed traditional conservative methods, I should have submitted a dignified state paper of probably 1,000 pages to the Congress, and debate would have been going on yet. But I took the canal zone and let Congress debate. And while the debate goes on, the canal does also. The arrogance and disdain for traditional and democratic methods of foreign policymaking are clearly stated here. I don't think we'll find a more clear statement anywhere else. And it's an unfortunate part of the legacy of which Roosevelt is a central part, and a legacy that echoed up to very recently. As an important as important as the progressive agenda in foreign affairs was, Roosevelt clearly, by this statement and many others he made, he felt, he, he felt constrained by it. Perhaps it was predictable, at least partway. Emphasizing markets as it did the, uh, the progressive vision of America's role in the world limited foreign affairs to representing and acting in the interest of a fraction of the nation's people, principally the industrial sector, the moneyed elites. He resented this kind of restraint. I think he resented all kinds of restraint, frankly. And indeed, it seems that Roosevelt despised and um, imposed on it. He was also constrained by long tradition in a nation that stubbornly refused to surrender its historically limited view of its international role. For perhaps the overwhelming majority of Americans, the nation was still best served by continuing to follow concepts inherited from the 18th century, concepts laid down by the founding fathers themselves. Isolationism was still a very powerful force in the American mind, and this meant simply avoiding entangling alliances, maintaining relationships built as much as possible and limited to trade, and staying out of the corrupt politics of Europe. Roosevelt knew that in the modern world this was neither possible or even desirable, certainly not in the long run. He was the gravitational center of a foreign policy elite for the last two decades of his life. Roosevelt's philosophy of power, his love for order, his knowledge of history and military strategy, and long experience in public life, from his early days as Assistant Secretary of the Navy to his last days planning to fight Wilson's plan for the League of Nations. All of this rebelled against the persistence of, old, of the old notions governing American foreign relations and fueled his disdain of anyone who relied on them too much. This included, as I said earlier, both the overwhelming majority of Americans and his brethren in the progressive movement. Roosevelt dismissed the typical American progressive as, quote, an utterly hopeless nuisance because of his incredible silliness in foreign affairs, unquote. At another point, he complained about how it was nearly impossible in a democratic society to sustain any kind of forward-thinking, long-range foreign policy. And still, there are other examples 
More examples of constraints that bound Roosevelt's hand in foreign affairs, some coming from perhaps unexpected corners. Many historians have, for instance, maintained that racism facilitated American expansionism in, in Roosevelt's time, that its influence favored men like him, whose racial feelings and imperial ambitions were summarized in Rudyard Kipling's call for civilized nations to take up the white man's burden, to conquer so-called waste places on the earth, and govern those who are supposedly incapable of self-government. I've argued elsewhere, I will argue in the book when it comes out that during this period, white supremacy, in fact, proved to be a far, far more problematic crusading ideology that many historians have acknowledged. Again, most historians insist that racism practiced and perfected at home was taken abroad and it rationalized and justified and facilitated American empire. But if, for example, we define racism generally as exclusionary relations of power based on race, we also have to recognize that racist sentiments and prejudices manifested themselves into structures, into custom, into tradition, into law, into the rules, into the rule of government, governance, and so on. What we ultimately see, I contend, are significant episodes where the makers of American foreign relations were compelled to accommodate and compromise with racist structures that were deeply rooted in American society. In these situations, there were more than a few I'm sorry, in these situations, and there were more than a few, racism presented a constant obstacle to American imperialism. So in the aftermath of Roosevelt's settlement of the Russo-Japanese War, we see efforts to create another rapprochement, this one between the United States and Japan, agreements that were made between the two countries from 1905 to 1907. We count the root, I mean, sorry, the Taft. Uh, Kasura Agreement from 1905, the Ru Takahura Agreement of 1908, and the Lansing Ishii Agreement of 1917. What we see in this are successively uh, six efforts, uh, what we see in these uh, agreements successively is a recognition of Japan's preeminent interest in Korea, uh, protection laid up around the Philippines from Japanese aggression, a protection laid up, uh, protection uh, erected for the open door, and protection for the territorial and political. Uh, integrity of China. At least all of these things exist, existed on paper. But soon after Portsmouth was, was signed, Portsmouth uh, Peace Treaty was signed, domestic politics, domestic racism throws us a curve. It became uh, well known, that it became known that Asian children were being segregated in the San Francisco schools. This reignited old animosity, certainly in California, and it sort of set a fire under foreign relations back in Washington. It was reminiscent of the Chinese Exclusion Acts of 1882 and 1892. Chinese, uh, chil Chinese children were somewhat vulnerable to uh, this kind of discrimination because China was, in, uh, China was weak. It was unable to strike back. An insult to Japanese citizens and Japanese children was another matter altogether. The solution, at least the short-term one, was the Gentleman's Agreement of 1907, under which Japan would keep labor off the American mainland, and in return, the San Francisco School Board would rescind its rule, segregating Japanese children. But like I said, this was a momentary settlement. But what we see here is policy complicated by racism coming up from below. This was a key moment in this slow accrual of suspicion and tension between the United States and Japan that takes us from the progressive era up to Pearl Harbor. Now, I'll go back to Professor Gerstel's point, citing Professor Blum. 
and his statement that many progressives did not count anti-racism among their priorities. But anti-racism as a priority would be made clear on the domestic front soon enough, not necessarily from the mainstream progressives like Roosevelt, but certainly through other progressive view, uh, groups like the National Association for Colored Women, NAGRA movement, and the NAACP. Although Professor Blum might be right, for progressives like Roosevelt, anti-racism was not a priority. But its impact, even in the area of foreign affairs, would be appreciated soon enough. Let me finish. Again, writ large, the progressives' goals in the area of foreign policy were geared towards widening America's role in the world. TR's goals obviously overlay this, but it went beyond it as well. His goal, ultimately, was to make the United States a great nation in any way he could. New methods, however, and new ideas to make this come to pass were slow in arriving in part because the progressives, and I think especially Roosevelt, like I said earlier, underestimated the power of tradition, the, the sense of security people felt in tried and true traditions like small government, anti-militarism, non-entangling alliances, the security they felt through localism, and the effects, positive effects they believed, the positive effects racism had in structuring and ordering their society in a way that they could recognize and feel comfortable with. In failing to understand, again, the limits of racism, um, well, they also failed in understanding the limits of race, the, the, the limits racism would bring on certain foreign policies. Most of the progressives, and to a certain extent Roosevelt, I think, were wedded to the 19th century idea that commerce was enough. But Roosevelt, again, what distinguishes him is that he tried very purposely to transcend this. And in doing so, he raised awareness that the United States could become an arbiter between great nations. It could, it could uh, become uh, a power that could stand side by side with the great powers of the world. It could be a force for peace and order and security. And this notion certainly has a long legacy that carries on to Woodrow Wilson, FDR, JFK, Reagan, and even William Jefferson Clinton. But in his own time, I believe, these desires, these goals, had a somewhat limited impact. Now, from another paper, let me just sort of lift an idea, another paper we'll be hearing today. I think part of the reason Roosevelt's goals went unfulfilled, at least to a certain extent, is because unlike Woodrow Wilson, I mean, under, uh, uh, unlike Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt wasn't a teacher. He was not a man of the people like FDR. There were no fireside chats, as far as I know, during the, during the uh, Theodore Roosevelt administration, it wasn't because there wasn't, it was just because there was no radio. But Roosevelt felt, uh, to quote Professor Cooper, that the best way to communicate these ideas to people was to assume an evangelical mode of public persuasion. In other words, he led and moved far ahead of the people, perhaps far too quickly for them to follow. Roosevelt knew what was right and others had to follow. He didn't wait for them, he didn't even wait for the Congress. People had to be brought along, I think, not just sort of by this evangelical sweep of rhetoric, but they had to be brought along, they had to be educated, like Wilson attempted to do. They had to have foreign policies, complicated issues like that, explained to them, like FDR attempted to do. 
Democracy had to be a part of foreign policy formation. But this is a lesson that was lost at least during the, uh, during the uh, Theodore Roosevelt administration. Without this, democracy being invested in foreign policy formation, we've seen the terrible consequences that accompany what I recognize, at least in uh, Theodore Roosevelt's time, as an arrogance of power. But in the end, I think what we have from Roosevelt and an array of foreign policy initiatives that he began, the foundations he laid for the century, is a diverse and complex legacy that is still worthy of continued, energetic, and, dare I say, strenuous discussion. Thank you. Daniel? I'm just going to sit here if you can, if you can hear me. Um, there are really two, two interlocked phenomena of the 20th century that, that are on the table here, and I want to identify them and see if we can prize them apart a little bit. Uh, the first, critically important, is the invention of the modern presidency. And in this, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was there at the beginning. Theodore Roosevelt was indeed the inventor, as, if there as a single one, of the, of the modern, extremely powerful uh, uh, president. Uh, the, the president uh, with, a, uh, with a controlling uh, power and, and, and vision and, uh, and initiative over foreign affairs. The president uh, who initiates legislation uh, sent to Congress new in, in, in the time, an oratorical centrality to the presidency, which did not exist before the invention of what Jeffrey Tullis calls the rhetorical presidency. There's a, there's a, a renegotiation, a redivision of the powers between uh, Congress, uh, the president, and the courts in the early 20th century, and all the figures that we identify with the progressive tradition are utterly and deeply involved in that. But there's also, secondly, and differently, a transformation of politics that goes on in the 20th century. And if I can disagree with close uh, uh, friends, uh, the organizer of our panel, Sean and, and uh, John Blum, who almost uh, taught me and would have been a good idea if he'd only not been on leave. Um, and, but the progressive tradition cannot be, I think, invested in its progressive presidents. That that old synthesis by which you move from Roosevelt to Wilson to FDR, uh, to uh, Kennedy, to Johnson, to Clinton. That's a story, a very important story about the presidency. But the progressive political tradition comes not out of the White House, but out of society. One sees its roots in city government in the 1880s and 1890s, model cities, exciting uh, uh, places for, for the uh, laboratories of politics. One sees it in the states, uh, like, uh, like Wisconsin and other model states, also serving as laboratories of, of social action and social legislation. One sees it in the settlement houses. One sees it in the pressure groups. One sees it in the labor unions. This is a movement that came out of civil society and pushed its presidents. It pushed TR hard so that the Theodore Roosevelt of 1912 is very different from the Theodore Roosevelt of 1908. And because, because he found himself pushed to the forefront of a much broader coalition. It pushed Woodrow Wilson hard. So the Woodrow Wilson of 1916 is not the same Woodrow Wilson who ran for president in 1912 and was certainly not the same uh, 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 person uh, who here at, at Princeton would hardly have been called a progressive at all. 
move away from the presidents, of course, and you get into this multitudinous uh, world of shifting coalitions, ramifying issues, new agendas, a kind of moving set of Venn diagrams that are very, very difficult to study, and it's no wonder we take recourse uh, to the simpler at the top. It's very difficult to pin down the quicksilver fluidity of the issues, the ways in which people recognized themselves and argued with themselves across these issues. Back in, when Richard Hofstetter wrote that, that magnificent age of reform, it seemed pretty clear that the kinds of persons mobilized in the progressive coalitions were white, northern, Protestant Americans, WASP types. And they were. And they were deeply taken up by precisely the kind of, of uh, social gospel oratory that we, that we heard and will hear again with Wilson's speeches. But they were not alone in the making of progressive political tradition. Women, as a whole generation of historians have now demonstrated, uh, Linda Gordon, Theodore Scottsville, and others, women formed an active uh, a cadre of, of political uh, progressives and social progressives in these years, putting different issues on the agenda than their male counterparts uh, had, had put, uh, with, a, with a particular interest, but not only an interest in the welfare of mothers, women, children, a social maternalism, it's sometimes called. We must reach out beyond the men who dominate Hofstadter's vision to their wives, daughters, one must reach much farther than that, too. It's true that the, that the working or class organizations were very important in keeping the pressure upon the uh, progressives from the left, from the radical edges. But the more we know, and as we've learned in the last uh, 10 or 15 years from the work of social historians, labor unions were much more deeply involved in the progressive coalitions at the state and local level than Hofstetter uh, ever realized. African Americans, too take their place, a very complicated place, within this energizing of politics. For it is out of the same, as I say, complicated, squirmy, moving Venn diagrams that we get both the organization of the NAACP, inconceivable without the progressives uh, who helped to fund and to organize it, and we get the racial segregation that Woodrow Wilson brought to the White House. The very messiness of this period reflects its rootedness in civic society. There's no bright line on the left between the progressives and the socialists. There's no bright line on the right between the progressives and uh, business efficiency experts. It's a tent that reaches from William English Walling on the left uh, to Herbert Hoover on the right, at least until 1929, probably until 1930. So I want to join uh, uh, Gary and also join uh, the, the, the context that John Blum gave us in trying to shift our attention away from the presidents uh, to the world that they lived in. How did progressives recognize each other? By, I think, a set of shifting but important languages, a set of code words to go back to Tuesday's debate where you recognize yourself as in or out of a certain conversation. And key to that were two things, I think. A, discovery of a new language of society, and the discovery of a new set of social and governmental tools. And I'll say those only briefly. Sometimes said that, that the progressives discovered the concept of society, but that's clearly not true. The concept of society was a conservative discovery in the early 19th century, and uh, its most uh, prominent spokesman in the late 19th century is William Graham Sumner at Yale, uh, for whom society's 
importance vis-a-vis the individual was, was simply unquestioned. Society ran by natural, organized laws. There was no stopping the juggernaut of society, only a kind of a fitting in. What shifted in the early 20th century and what became critical to the progressive language of politics was a different understanding of society, not as a set of immutable laws, iron laws of the market, iron laws of evolution, what have you, but a set of complicated social relationships in which moral and personal and economic and social complicity were what made society work, or interdependence, to use a word that, that, uh, that President Clinton uh, used yesterday. This is where the muckrakers were so critical, those who reached into the world of social life to bring back chunks of real life, as they said, raw, and to put them under, under the noses of those who spoke only in abstractions. The second thing that the progressives invented, as it were, in their new language of politics was a new use of government. Not that government hadn't done a lot before. The Republican Party, of course, the post-Civil War Republican Party, is the inventor of big government. It's the inventor of high tariff, high taxes. It's taxes that come through your goods, a kind of sales tax, but they are the, they're the original high-tax party. They're the original give-it-all-away party, too, in the uh, uh, pensions for union uh, veterans, not, uh, not Confederate veterans, but, but union uh, veterans. And the Republicans were full of ideas about government to promote uh, uh, industry, um, to subsidize industry, to put government at the service of the major economic players of the late 19th century. What the progressive invent progressives invented was not a new concept of government, but a very precise set of governmental tools in addition to those of straight subsidization, regulatory commissions, factory inspectors, street sanitation engineers, city planners, agricultural extension agents, all those things we now think of as bureaucracy and are so naturalized in our life that we rarely recognize them. These were not the only solution to social problems. Here I, I think I disagree a bit with, with John. Government was among the solutions for the progressives. It nested into a whole family, a seamless family of ways of carefully moving into control, regulate, steer social relations. So social investigation and a certain social moralism, a willingness to take a word like the public good as having real meaning, willingness to take a word like social injustice as having real meaning, that on the one hand, and the new interest in, a, in a, using a government and other agencies as precise instrumentalities of social progress, this, I think, was the set of codes that allowed progressives to recognize each other across their shifting interests. In this way, it could not have been White House contained. And indeed, it was not even contained within the borders of the United States. That this shift in social aspirations and shift in politics was international. In a world that I once tried to map out, it runs from Berlin on the one end to San Francisco on the other end. And there's an there's a, a extraordinarily active sharing of aspirations, sharing of, of, of projects, a, a rivalry, a competition that makes an Atlantic politics, indeed, a will make a world of politics. The progressive political tradition was as broad as modern industrial capitalism. 
And in that sense, I want to come back and agree with something and underscore something that John Blum uh, gave us in, in his opening remarks, because the progressives were in standing quarrel with what we now call the market, though they didn't call it that then. They were in standing quarrel with the idea that economic relations by themselves invisibly organized everything that those relations touched automatically raised all the boats in the sea. That's not that the progressives wanted to do away with markets. The progressives lived in a world, a world of high industrial capitalism that they did not want fundamentally to change. But they did, and this strikes me as their utterly characteristic and most important language, they did want to make sure that markets did not consume all of social life. Some things needed to be taken out of the market. The labor of 10-year-old children in southern mills just could not be put up for sale. They wanted to regulate and stabilize markets so they did not crash as they did so often in the 19th century. They wanted to set limits on contracts, not to do away with them, but not to leave them to uh, the uh, natural bargaining of the parties, which they recognized was not an equal bargain between those of equal power. And they wanted to think that society had some obligation as an ambulance wagon to come along and care for those who fell by the way, one way or another, and thus through an industrial accident, through poverty, through malnutrition. Those two needed to be thought of as a governmental and social responsibility. It's this desire to preserve the engine of industrial capitalism and at the same time to set limits upon it that makes them, made them seem, in my youth, uh, so namby-pamby, so compromising, so wishy-washy. Now, as Gary says, um, the times have changed, and they look at times quite, quite heroic. But I do think that, that it's in precisely their middle ground that we take their tradition. I don't want to dismiss Theodore Roosevelt, and this is the last point I'll make. He became a focal point, particularly in 1912, using an agenda that others had made for him. He helped to move a number of very important problems from the local level to the national arena, which was extremely important. He was a participant, sometimes reluctantly, in some of these uh, movements during his presidency. But presidents do lots of things. They energize, they focus, they deflect, they co-opt, they mess up, they institute. All those things presidents do, as they should. The progressive tradition lay in civic society, not in the White House, in the social movements, in the letterhead groups, in these new languages, I think. And I hope that during the rest, as we move deeper into this during the rest of this conference, we will not forget that. Well, it seems to me that there is a specter of the, t the two Roosevelts on the panel, and we're trying, we're scholars, and we're trying to uh, bring these two Roosevelts together, and that's a very interesting enterprise. The other Roosevelt has been worked over very interestingly and thoroughly by feminist scholars in the past decade who have done what can only be called a muckraking job on TR, um, looking very closely and brilliantly at his Anglo-Saxonist rhetoric, which uh, tied his views on immigrants and African-Americans 
Americans very intimately to his views on women. Um, I'm not going to talk about that, although some of the policy issues that that brings up are, are here in what I have to say. But what I find interesting about this enterprise, I'm rarely part of a discussion of the President's. I have to say that I'm certainly one of the generation that Gary Gerstle talked about who was brought up, cut my teeth on a real critical uh, view of the progressives as mealy-mouthed namby-pambies. And uh, I have had to change my mind a lot, partly by virtue of the wonderful work that colleagues have done, like Gary Gerstle and Dan Rogers, partly by virtue of living through very conservative times, which I had not experienced in my youth, and seeing uh, the development of, of uh, President Clinton. So I find this a very engaging conversation. Um, in 1908, the great William James, a professor at TR's own campus of Harvard, published an essay in a popular magazine on the role that he hoped educated youth could take in the new era he saw beginning in the United States, an era we have seen which was formed in part by the achievements and personality of TR. James urged that truly educated young people must live by what he called sympathy and admiration, not dislikes and disdain. And James was talking about a kind of arrogance towards society that he knew well from his own class, his own upbringing, um, his own little closed world of Cambridge, and his own campus, where that kind of arrogance and snobbery was very much accepted as the core mentality of the young men he taught, although it was not unchallenged in 1908. Like many other liberals of his time, James believed that along with political change, a great change in thinking for the elites was necessary to end a real impasse, a blockage in American life that was political as well as cultural. The distance between places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the immigrant wards of the cities, like the Lower East Side, where uh, John Blum tells us that Roosevelt walked with Lincoln Steffens, was vast. The social gulf is a gulf of the imagination. Jane Adams, a uh, contemporary of James's and of TR's, proposed, and by that. Jane Addams implied that the social gulf could also be closed by an act of the imagination. Um, President, I was uh, reminded of these words um, and the evocation of sympathy, empathy, a kind of gener generosity towards one's vision of America. When I was listening to President Clinton, uh, a man, I believe, of sympathies and admirations, and the question I, I think I bring to this discussion is whether that sympathy and admiration, that, that uh, uh, strain of mentality is perhaps more, uh, uh, has come later to the tradition than we would like to believe, um, whether perhaps it's only uh, a recent development. Um, I found myself struggling with, uh, on the one hand, looking at this marvelous machinery of the modern presidency that TR invented, this terrifically uh, vigorous and whizzing um, uh, network of policies and laws and uh, initiatives, uh, and wanting to acknowledge them, and on the other, uh, continuing to come up against questions about the other TR, about what, what 
I wondered was perhaps an enduring legacy of dislike and disdain uh, in this president and perhaps by extension in the presidency that he founded. I do just want to, um, well, I'll save that for the discussion, um, something about Wilson. Um, I think that this is not just a question of sexual or racial discrimination, um, as Professor Blum put it, but rather one of deep-seated suspicion of the polity, which is certainly there in certain wings of the progressive movement. Um, at least, and this is the bald fact of it that is so naturalized in our history that you, the audience, may say ho-hum, there they go again, but at least one half the citizenry was disenfranchised at this moment, a fact that was naturalized by uh, the ubiquity of the disenfranchisement of women throughout constitutional democracies at the time. There is, of course, no liberal tradition that is not founded uh, amidst deep inequalities and does not proceed on that basis. But the political and historical question I propose is not whether or not to denounce or muckrake traditions for their complicity with inequalities, but to assess the costs and the historical implications. And uh, I think some counterfactual questions um, that may come up later, I'll just throw one out now, might let us look at uh, some of these questions in a more interesting light. The counterfactual I would propose is what if TR had thrown his political weight to women's suffrage during his presidency? Uh, it was not then a radical issue. It was disengaged from its red-hot ties to issues of black suffrage, partly through the racism of the women's movement, it was arguably the most democratic and broad-based movement, uh, was certainly the most broad-based movement of the time. Four million women card-carrying members of the suffrage organization, um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, turn, um, uh, housing 80,000 homeless people every year at their six-story headquarters in uh, Chicago. Um, Roosevelt's relationship to this movement uh, shows little sympathy or admiration. While he was quite an innovator, we know, in regard to his vision of men's roles in the new century, um, he was very much a man of the previous century in his relationship to gender politics with a penchant for lecturing and haranguing women about their rightful place. So this wasn't just a peripheral issue. This was a very deep-seated, well, I would argue a deep-seated issue in, in um, what Gary rightly raised as TR's obsession or fascination with who will be in this new, who will be included in the new nation. Um, the pronouncements of Roosevelt on women that have received the most attention lately are from a famous 1905 speech on race suicide. Race suicide was the supposed numerical decline of Yankee stock in face of soaring immigrant birth rates. Soaring immigrant, and I guess you'd have to add black birth rates. Um, although in this speech he was more concerned with the foreign born. Uh, because supposedly selfish American women who were truly, by 
virtue of their stock, fit to reproduce, were instead having fewer children or putting off marriage or monogamy altogether, the poor were going to crowd out the rich, Roosevelt warned. Uh, fecund races, he said, could co would colonize the waste places, which um, came up in Eric's talk. I hadn't realized that was from Kipling. Um, TR's racialism, widely shared, of course, by white Americans at the time and complicated, as we've learned um, from different panelists, but in his case, always inventive, um, intertwined with his hostility to the aspirations of educated women of his own class. Now, um, later on, we're going to hear Professor Cooper speak of the rich context of popular movements as an endowment for both these presidents. Um, and uh, here I'm agree agreeing with uh, Dan that the, the relationship of TR to popular movements is very complicated. I don't quite have a grip on it. His relationship to women's political po uh, culture booming at the time was you could characterize it at best as erratic. The suffrage movement, which was large, as I've said, ladylike and mannerly in the first years of his presidency, ground on with little hope of influencing change at the federal level. Later, he would explicitly denounce suffrage as encouraging immorality. At the same time, and this is the interesting point, he was the first president to give the women's movement some access to the White House. Um, partly by virtue of being a different kind of president, but in doing that, he did uh, consult the, a few of the settlement workers uh, on the left wing of progressivism, the labor sympathizers, on issues of women and child workers. He collaborated with them to sponsor investigations of women and child labor and sponsored a White House conference of chil on children that actually discussed the possibility of mothers' pensions. Does one spy hear something of William James's sympathy? Perhaps, but only for the by then comparatively well-worn um, public figure of the widowed mother. Um, you'd have to say that TR liked his educated women pregnant, and he liked his working woman haggard, women haggard. Um, and then his sympathies would be mobilized. <laughs> um, <laughs> if not exactly objects of dislike and disdain, working women were hardly subjects for admiration and sympathy, as they were for many of the settlement workers, for Harvard men, slightly younger who had themselves moved through the settlement houses on their way to positions in politics and government. This was a different generational mentality. Um, uh, Professor Blum used the, I think, gentle term and generous term, uh, lack of rectitude for the way in which uh, TR sometimes looked on people he had to work with. The problem is that um, Many people who we now view as, um, uh, I don't want to use the term great Americans, as, as uh, founders of incredibly important political uh, movements that are an indelible part of the progressive tradition seemed either lacking in rectitude or lacking in capacity to him. Um, 
Roosevelt could not resist an attack on Jane Addams when she dared to move outside of um, safe issues like women and children workers and publish an ambitious book on democracy and social ethics in 1909. He called her foolish Jane Addams um, and talked about the way in which her, she, her head had been turned by sentimental claptrap of Tolstoy. A Chicago editor, himself a liberal, took up the fight on Adams' behalf. Uh, Adams' book, he wrote, had nobility without egotism and extravagance, while Roosevelt's treatment of Adams was egotistic and extravagant without a trace of nobility. Um, T.R.'s sense of uh, people he could work with in this new political culture could shift under pressure, but it does not it certainly at times seems to be inflexible. W.E.B. Du Bois, with whom he did work, he spoke of um, in private as a dangerous person. Eugene Debs, with whom he did not work, uh, but this is a more famous denunciation, was, he said, America's Robespierre. Here are those dislikes and disdains again. Um, how do we understand this? Must we as historians, resign ourselves to a progressive tradition that separates its presidents from some of the finest fighters for justice of its time. Yet when T.R. promised a suffrage plank in 1912, Jane Addams threw her support wholeheartedly to his candidacy. Uh, she said to her friends that it was a little hard to swallow those battleships because the progressives <laughs> promised two battleships every year, but still she jumped on board. Um, um, surely this gift for gathering the disaffected strays into the fold is one of the elements of the successful progressive president that we might consider today. We will see it again and again over the course of the 20th century. It's the practical and strategic basis of what Gary Gerstle has called so interestingly the protean character of American liberalism. Thank you. We got started a little late, and I think that we can actually run on till uh, oh, maybe quarter of 12, something like that. Uh, so we'd certainly welcome questions from the audience. And uh, let me suggest that you identify who you are for the benefit of the whole room, and speak loudly because the natural voice doesn't carry terribly well in this room. like to reply, uh, I'd like to use two words that begin with C. Uh, those of you who've read my paper know that I have a, a weakness for these, these uh, alliterations. Uh, one word is caution and the other is conservative. Um, my sense is that most of you have stressed uh, TR's boldness and his getting ahead of and gathering up uh, these forces of discontent. Uh, although as, as John put it very well, and, and Gary seconded it, uh, there is a co-optationist here. I mean, and that, that comes to the conservatism. 
my sense is, and it was interesting the point that, that uh, Professor Stensel raised, you know, why didn't he get out in front of women's suffrage? You know, why didn't he take that up? Well, in fact, there's only one movement. If you want to look at him as president, ex-president something else, but if you want to look at him as president, there was only one movement, in fact, that he got out in front of, and that was conservation. That's the only thing where he's out in front, where it's not something that's somehow pushing him or that he's in uh, reacting, uh, reacting to it. So that's one thing. The other thing is I don't have any trouble with this. A lot of people do, though, with the word conservative uh, to describe Theodore Roosevelt. I, in fact, I don't think you can understand Theodore Roosevelt unless you accept him as a conservative. I mean, this is a man, he called himself a conservative at times. He called himself a radical. He never called himself a liberal. It seems to me there's there's just, I see him very much as a figure out of the Western conservative tradition. And I wondered how you would respond to that. Want me to begin? Sure. Go ahead, John. I'm sorry I couldn't hear every word in your question, but as you know, uh, in another context, on an earlier occasion, I wrote a book saying that Roosevelt was a conservative, and I don't retract anything in <laughs> The point he was trying to make was that because he was a conservative, he was a progressive. I don't think we need to elaborate on that. It, it's, it's simply that um, he thought it was necessary to uh, champion change in order to preserve what he thought was essential. And by conservative, he never meant stand patter. If I could add just a sentence, that helps to explain why he was not in front of the movement, uh, for example, Jane Addams represented. Uh, Roosevelt uh, was and I think feminist scholars have made this point extremely well. Roosevelt had a very uh, constricted definition of masculinity, which he championed. And I would argue he was never really sympathetic to women. Uh, there was a whole stretch of uh, the general agenda of American reformers from 1890 to the 1920s, with which Roosevelt did not identify himself. Uh, so that what Christine said, what Gary said, uh, I have really no argument with. Um, I was asked to uh, prepare a paper on Roosevelt and progressivism, and I would have uh, proceeded quite differently had I been asked to prepare a paper on progressivism. Finally, I have the greatest respect, as most of you do, for the work of the late Professor Hofstadter. But actually, after he died, further work, mostly in essay form within learned journals, pointed out that the characteristics that he attributed to progressivism applied equally well to the Republican Old Guard or the American Legion. All Americans were moralists, at least they used the moralist uh, vocabulary, not just progressives. Precisely as most white Americans were racists, 
certainly most members of the Republican Party, just as TR was. One of the problems we have in identifying what is progressive at any given time, and it changes, is to take apart and put somewhere else what is not. And the progressives were neither conservatives nor radicals, as many of you have said in many ways. Um, talking about presidents is perhaps not the best way to get at those issues. Thank you. Other questions? There's a microphone coming. Uh, my name is Paul Berman. I want to uh, uh, propose what may seem like a, an arcane uh, literary footnote to uh, Professor Love's presentation. And that, that's to mention that in uh, 1905 or 1906, the great Nicaraguan poet Ruben Dario uh, wrote a poem called Ode to Roosevelt, which appeared in uh, the Cantos de Vida de Esperanza or, or the next book, I, I don't remember exactly which, which goes, uh, it is necessary to speak with the voice of the Bible or that of Walt Whitman to address you. You are the eagle of the Rockies. You are Nebuchadnezzar. You are the professor of energy. <laughs> you must remember that the condor of the Andes exists. The lion of Spain has left many cubs. Be careful. You have many things, but there is one thing you do not have, God. This poem <laughs> is one of the founding poems of modern American literature. Bent de Rio was the first great Latin American writer. It's uh, a commonplace to say today that the dominant literature, the most brilliant literature of our time is Latin America's, which has long ago surpassed the, the literatures of France and Germany and Italy as a literature which is read around the world. And this poem of Dario's is in fact a central, one of the handful of central political poems uh, written uh, in Spanish. And I, I just mention it uh, in order to remind ourselves that Theodore Roosevelt aroused a fear in Latin America which will never go away. It is a, 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 it is a basic building block of all Latin American culture and is, is a permanent fact now of world civilization because of the role of Latin American literature uh, in, in world literature. Okay. Other questions? Hi, I'm uh, Drew Eisenberg. I'd like to follow up on, on John Cooper's characterization of Roosevelt as a Western conservative, not the conservative part of it, but the Western part of it. I, I, I hesitate to do this because I usually object when people ask a question from their own 
specialty, but I just can't resist here. Um, it seems to me that something that Roosevelt always thought was formative in his life was his two-year stint as a rancher in North Dakota. And one of the things he was best known for before he got back into politics in New York was writing a multi-volume, The Winning of the West. And if you want to look to uh, you know, try to understand his ideas about race, there are blueprints for that in Winning of the West, where he saw American settlement as a kind of testing of the metal of Anglos against Indians and their Gallic and Hispanic allies. Um, if you want to try to understand his notions about women and masculinity, that came out of this sort of cowboy masculinity that he developed in North Dakota. Uh, and a lot of the contradictions of progressivism were particularly apt in his conservation programs in the West. I just wondered if the panel could say something more about Roosevelt and progressivism and the West. Well, I, yeah, I was, I was thinking about the Western um, material and then also about the Rough Riders because um, uh, Gary said that he, he does have a bigger America as part of this new nationalism, and, and that's absolutely right. Um, so I think that we need to think of this, these um, particular preoccupations as productive, not just repressive. Um, but um, I think that the the way that he's, he, I think he made a kind of, in, in my view, he made a sort of a last grab to recreate the gentlemanly role um, with the idea of forging bonds with these men who were lesser of lesser social caste but um, of a more primitive masculinity. They came out of a more stable system of sexual difference. So they could be gathered into the community because although they were the, your social inferiors, there was also a certain theater of egalitarianism there. Um, so I'm just, I was trying, I was struck listening to Eric and, and Gary by the different communities that are part of, are ostensibly roped into this new nationalism. And, and there are, it's never just, well, we're all equals. And there's never a radical egalitarianism there, which is, he, he, that was not TR. Um, but it does have implications. With the Rough Riders, I was thinking about how much that um, experience resonates with the experience, uh, a, a British uh, experience of uh, fighting for the empire with colonials, um, that that doesn't necessarily participate in an American Republican tradition, but more of an idea that fighting men with a mission uh, to save civilization can be mobilized under the command of a, a good Anglo-Saxon officer. I, I think the uh, <clears throat> the West is absolutely, or I should say, uh, the what Roosevelt's image of the West yeah. is absolutely crucial to the formation of his politics. It it might be useful uh, for some of the reasons Chris mentioned. Uh, it's all, it may be useful to uh, contrast or to put alongside Roosevelt's vision of the West with that of another very important historian, uh, his, and Roosevelt was a historian and president of the American Historical Association. Frederick Jackson Turner. Uh, the West for Frederick Jackson Turner was an empty place into which peaceful people from Europe came to settle and uh, lose their clothes, languages, other things from Europe and, and form 
something utterly new and utterly democratic. Uh, and that, in a sense, became the dominant view of the settlement of America and within the progressive historical tradition. What's interesting to me is that I think Roosevelt's vision of the West is actually um, gets us to a better place in the sense that uh, this was not empty space, uh, that he was very clear from the beginning that uh, this was occupied space and that uh, the American people did not uh, prove themselves by going to a place where no one was. They proved themselves by going to a place that belonged to the Indians and through savage warfare proved their mettle, took it, took it from them. Uh, and uh, so his story about the West is full of conflict and warfare and often savagery. And his, and his, uh, and his Rough Rider exploits were an effort to reenact in his own life the myth that he had written about as happening in the American West. Uh, so uh, I think the, to understand Roosevelt, one has to um, begin, in a sense, with the winning of the West. I agree with Chris that it's, it's not simply a story of uh, repression, um, exploitation, dis dispossession, uh, because there's, it's also a story of hybridity. And in this way, um, th this is, an, uh, I think, an unremarked-upon element of Roosevelt's uh, belief, which I find actually quite interesting, uh, because the, it's, this is the original melting pot, the West, for him. And this is where people of different European groups come together and are forged into new men. Now, they are men. They're women, but women are in sub subordinate position. They're clearly people who uh, can't belong to this. Uh, but his, his celebration of hybridity is quite interesting and deserves uh, to, and, and his, his injunction to Americans to look beyond their own groups and mix with each other. Uh, and it deserves more attention that has, than it has been given. So the West is certainly a very fertile place to begin understanding um, Roosevelt as a man and um, as a politician and as a historian. Sure. Uh, wait for the mic. Sage Matthew, Princeton University, but still guilty of a Yale connection. Um, I have a question that I hope can bring the West and this imperialism issue back. Um, I'm very interested in how progressives might have considered their new worldview as something that should be exported and perhaps even imposed as a world social order. And, and I think that the on the point of the Rough Riders, it's interesting that the Canadian militia around the same time that goes and fights in the Boer War are also called the Rough Riders. And, at, and when they come back here, they're vying for the Caribbean. They're vying for a presence there. And they are making references to what the progressives in the United States are doing. So, I mean, have you... Perhaps Professor Love can talk about that and talk about how this whole idea of empire and manhood and race are tied together and getting acted out on Central America and the Caribbean. I don't think you can limit it to the Central America and the Caribbean, even though those are the most obvious flashpoints. I think we look at those because those tend to be uh, some of the most violent cases and the places where the most injustice is obviously done. But if you want to talk about issues about you know, how progressives envision sort of a remaking of the world order fashion after the American model, 
you have to be, I think, more specific in terms of the geography you're speaking of. Certainly, the progressives, when they're looking at Europe, take on a very different attitude than when they're looking at East Asia or Central America or Latin America or the Caribbean. And, you know, sort of parsing it in that way, when they look at Europe, of course they want to export American culture. At the same time, they want to export American products, but culture works through production and exporting of ideas that go along with that production. So at this point, what you're talking about, the, uh, the, the examples that usually come up are um, singer sewing machines and ivory soap. Uh, they sort of carry on the sort of progressive um, need to find an open market, sort of, you know, maintain the open door, uh, trying to sort of uplift and you know, modernize backwards corrupt Europe. Uh, but it's done in a, ver in, a, in a relatively passive way. If you look at what France has done the last few years in terms of just a reaction to Euro Disney, it may not seem so passive, but it, it has been sort of a soft hand as opposed to what we see in the Caribbean, South, and Central America. There, because the attitudes about, about race and civilization, uh, white man's burden, have, have come down much harder, the methods have been clearly more oppressive. Some of it has to do with racism, but I think a lot more, uh, quite a bit of it has to do with um, at least in the case of the Caribbean and Central America, perceived differences in interest and proximity and security uh, along, with, along with race. So there I think the, 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 um, the issue is much more, much more complicated. But race, since there's an obvious difference there in terms of color or ethnicity, uh, race you know, emerges in a way it never will emerge, although I think fundamentally the methods are the same because they're looking at East Asia and, and uh, the Caribbean, South and Central America much the same way. Once they're uplifted and Christianized, what's the next step? Sell them products. And ultimately the, the emphasis of selling them products and making them self, uh, you know, capable of self-government is to stabilize, impose order, and make them as much as they're capable of being made like us into people like you know, good white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, the issue of masculinity is a very complicated one, and I think a very interesting one. Uh, spoken about by a number of wonderful historians. I've, I've, uh, I was reading you know, Kristen Hoganson's Fighting Amer for American Manhood. Obviously, Gil Biederman's Manliness and Civilization have taken these issues, and I think explained them in a way which they needed to be explained for quite a long time, but in an extraordinary way that even the most skeptical, even you know, the most skeptical old-style diplomatic historian can't ignore these issues anymore. Ideas like manhood and civilization are clearly so intimately related to the larger product, project of imperialism, whether it be military or cultural, that uh, those connections are inescapable. Now, whether gender is able to maintain the sort of uh, explanatory weight that I think these two writers wanted to explain is another question. I tend to be a little bit skeptical because I think ultimately national interest goes a lot further. But it's not, I'm, I'm convinced at least in this, to this degree, and I'm still thinking about this very hard. Um, you know, gender is absolutely critical, and perhaps, well, to me not as critical as race, but it is absolutely critical in, in, in talking about all those, uh, all those decisions. But the, the final point I want to make is it's very difficult to generalize because they're not just you know, looking to impose order or discipline people they consider lesser or inferior, but they are looking at this globally. And in that sense, I think the you have to look at the progressives and recognize the fact that they saw the diversity of the globe. Is that an adequate answer? I, okay. <laughs> I was trying to think up a bully 
concluding statement uh, that would summarize where we are. The best one I've come up with is Richard Hofstadter's one-liner. Uh, always remember the United States is the only nation that began with perfection and aspires to progress. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that'll take us this afternoon. No, no, it's much harder. What, what, what did you...